Welcome to the Control Alt Azure podcast. I'm Yusip. And I'm Tobias. Join us for a journey in the cloud. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Control Alt Azure. I am back here today with Yusi Roine. What's up? Hey, Toby. Things are, I would say things are good, even though I think this is the 27th Saturday I am experience, experiencing in a row. So you probably know what I mean. You work from home. The whole family is at home. It's remote school. The daycare might be closed. So every morning we wake up, we make breakfast, then we start planning for lunch, then we do snacks in the afternoon, then we do dinner, then we do supper. So you kind of learn to love staying at home. But at the same time, I'm also quite done with emptying and loading the dishwasher. I think I do it like twice a day and the laundry at least once a day. <laughs> so you kind of miss going to an office now? Yeah, I've, I've, I've kind of found this this new appreciation for going to the office and somebody else does the coffee for you you can sit in a nice quiet room just doing your emails and things now it's more of a kind of like doing working 20 minutes here 30 minutes there 45 minutes here hoping that the kid goes to nap nap time easily so that you get some stuff done but at the same time i also feel that everybody else is experiencing this same situation more or less so I'm not stressing about it too much. But at the same time, in Finland, the situation is relatively good. So I, I also can't complain at all. But it's interesting because it's so different. And, and I think we, we get by like this for a couple of more months if needed. But at the same time, I'm kind of hoping we could perhaps get some, some of the old normal things back at some point. Yeah. So how about for you? So for me... I mean, I've, I've been working from home for seven years, uh, more or less, and there's not a lot of change in that front for me. You know, I still do the dishes, which, you know, it's no more or less fun than it was before. It's just status quo. Uh, still got to do that. Um, the family is, of course, home a little bit more, but I have the luxury of being able to separate my home office because I've had my home office for seven years. Uh, or been working from home for seven years, I've I've got the luxury to have my like kind of confined space where I only do work. So whenever I need to get things done, I go in there, I close the door, and I'm unavailable. Um, but you know, with a two and a half year old in the house, then your unavailable does not meet her requirements for her request of your availability. So she will exactly. still crawl up the stairs and and come knock the door. So. Uh, but this is, you know, it's also pretty cool to to have the family close um, in that regard. Other than that, um, I actually brought out my road bike from the storage for the first time since last year because I was in a road accident where I was almost, you know, ran over by a Volvo XC90, like the hey. huge uh, SUV. And I look yeah. up and I see this monster of a car, like two decimeters or 20 centimeters from my head so that was a pretty close call uh, but now i'm back on the on the bike and i did my first bike ride yesterday so i am happy but also proud of myself that i actually kind of got over that initial fear of what if i actually go out and get under the car this time if i crash because it was a pretty near fatal crash so i'm i'm happy about that it also puts a lot of things into perspective 
for sure. I'm I'm happy you're here. And if it has to happen in Sweden, it has to be a Volvo, right? It cannot be. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Yeah, and uh, you know the chances of a Volvo is is probably higher than anything else right now. So. Yeah, those those Volvo drivers, I know a few of them. I used to have a Volvo, <laughs> not anymore though, so it it couldn't be me. Uh, alrighty, so uh, today's topic is Azure governance, the overview, and this is probably a topic that that could warrant maybe five more episodes. So the plan that we have is that we'll do this episode on getting the overview of the main services and capabilities. And then perhaps once we are done recording this, then we'll figure out, should we do one or two more episodes at some point uh, to do a bit more deeper dive on, on certain governance capabilities in Azure? Yeah. And so, so I hear this a lot. I hear Azure governance. I hear governance, uh, uh, you know, across the board for all types of systems, Office 365 governance, SharePoint governance, Exchange Online uh, admin governance, and now we have Azure governance. And you know, what is this? I think you you're sitting on a, a pile of knowledge here because you also you authored some kind of book around these kind of topics as well, didn't you? Yeah, I did one book last year. I think that was in. It was in September because we wanted to get the book ready for Ignite last year. So I was sitting at home after the summer vacation. And and for you in Sweden, for me in Finland, the vacation is typically four to six weeks maybe. And in certain companies, you can exchange some of the money you get on, on upon returning from vacation. You can exchange that money for additional two weeks of vacation so you can easily ramp it up to six or eight weeks of, of full vacation so i was enjoying my vacation last summer not working not writing anything i was uh in the middle of transforming uh from my previous company that i helped found find found and and while i was exiting that company i didn't really know what i would do next and some people i knew at sharegate the canadian company that does uh for example the sharepoint migration tooling as well as some of the azure cost management tools they approached me and asked that should we do yet another book again because we did one with them in 2018 and that was fun and I, I had the time, even though I wasn't on, on vacation anymore, but I wasn't really working full-time either. So this was in September, and and we came up with a plan, let's do a book on Azure governance. And that forced me into spending, I think, about three weeks deep diving in all of the Azure governance bits and pieces, building the demos for screenshots, anticipating a couple of uh, conference talks, doing the decks on that and the end result, the, the outcome from this was a book of about 90 pages. We wanted to keep it short enough so people would actually read it. Um, and it all, we also wanted to keep it timeless in the sense that once it's out, that you can pick up the book today or six months ago or six months from now, and it should still be relevant. So majority of the content should still be something you could use and benefit from. Mm -hmm. So, so that allowed me to understand the governance piece in in a bit more wider uh, perspective, if you will. So, for governance, often if I meet with customers or if I meet with partners, Microsoft partners or MVPs, somebody might say we we do governance or or we need governance, 
and it could be something for Azure, it could be something for Microsoft 365, it could be something for everything, so on-premises, hybrid, edge, cloud, what have you. And I know you can go to Wikipedia and, and type in governance, and it, it will give you pages upon pages of content what governance is. But in a nutshell, when we talk about Azure governance here, we talk about the capabilities, the tools, the, the possibilities in understanding what's happening in your Azure subscriptions in those investments. How do you monitor? How do you tackle them? And how do you constrain that, that things will, will, will be in good shape? And the obvious, obvious choice here would be that how do we limit what people are, are provisioning and how much that's going to cost us? Yeah. So the wider topic governance is, um, we'll put some links in the show notes to that as well. Like you mentioned, there is a plethora of information on, on Wikipedia. And so if we talk specifically about Azure governance and what that is, to put that into context, uh, into services and capabilities within Azure, what can you use to kind of strengthen your posture when it comes to Azure governance? So officially, Azure governance contains Azure policy for setting these sort of policies that allow you to, you to deny or forbid or, or just report on what, what your users are doing. So Azure policy is the first one. Then you have Azure management groups allowing you to structure your, your logical structure in the cloud. How do you want to um, manage the hierarchy of your subscriptions and management groups? That's the second one. Azure Blueprints is the third one for, for creating these predefined templates saying, oh, we don't want anybody to have this button available in Azure Portal, for example. Mm. The fourth one, Azure Resource Graph, allowing you to query and view what you actually have in there. And it's also a set of APIs. And the last one, the fifth one, if I, if I didn't lose count, no, the fifth one is cost management and billing, giving you reporting capabilities and, and limitations for cost. So that's, in a nutshell, there's a lot of things you just talked about. And I know I have a lot of experience with a lot of these, not all of them. Um, so we could probably do full episodes on each and, and every one of those. Um, but so there you just went through Azure policy, Azure management groups, Azure blueprints, Azure resource graph and cost management and billing. Do you need all of those? Uh, do you need to make use of all of these to have a, a good kind of Azure governance and, and what is a good Azure governance? I, I think this relates a bit to if, if you talk with companies who are embracing DevOps and you could ask them, do you need Azure DevOps? possibly, or more certainly you would. Do you need everything in there? Probably not. So the same applies here. In Azure governance, you typically get by quite well with policies and management groups. Those two are the critical ones. Obviously, cost management is critical as well, but that's not something you would typically need to fine-tune and, and manage on a, on a daily or weekly basis. For a lot of companies, cost management means okay, our budget is 1,000 euro a month. Let's aim for this. If it goes over, we'll do something or at least we'll get an alert if something happens. So yeah. in, a, in a sense, it's more reactive. And with policy and management groups, it's more proactive. Yeah. And so with your management groups, you mentioned you can kind of build a hierarchy or, or buckets of how you want to 
logic, logically structured subscriptions. And the way I use them is kind of to replicate the IT infrastructure that I need or want in my organization based on security policies and, and other policies that I need to apply to different areas of, of the organization. So is this generally how you would use management groups or are there like other use cases? Because it's you can kind of have a management group inside of a management group with a subscription inside of that and you know all the way up and all the way down and then hook that up to policies, right? Yeah, and if you are a small company or a company that only has one Azure subscription, you probably don't need Azure management groups that much because there's not much of a hierarchy you need to manage or understand. But once you start uh, creating your own custom applications, uh, perhaps doing R&D to come up with a solution you could then sell to your customers, then it makes sense to have a separate subscription, perhaps for development purposes, for testing, for Q&A, for production. And for that, you start using management groups. And it's super easy to, to do because you simply define, I've got this set of subscriptions, so you need to have visibility with one account for all of these Azure subscriptions. And then you create the hierarchy using the Azure management groups uh, blades in Azure portal. And once you're done with that hierarchy, you don't need to touch that anymore. It's, it's a fixed structure, a bit like your organizational structure is more or less fixed. And if you choose to change that, then you need to reflect those changes elsewhere as well. Okay, that makes sense. So ideally, you could then have different policies applied to different management groups. And if you have one, as you mentioned, for development, you could allow developers kind of to self-service things and if instead of going to IT or to their operations team and say, hey, we need a couple of new resources because we want to deploy these things, they could kind of do that with uh, based on the policies we set up for the dev subscription saying, you can deploy these type of resources using those templates only in these locations. Western Europe, that's what I allow. And you know, within these frames. So you could kind of do those kind of things as well with the, with the help of these governance tools in Azure. Yeah, the, the easiest approach with Azure policy is, is to define the, the geo, the, the region or the geo where, where you will allow developers, IT pros to deploy things. And for us, that's typically West Europe or, or North Europe. For somebody else, it might be a different geo. And then everything else would be forbidden. That's the easy policy and it's a built-in policy. You just configure the policy. And once you have the policy, you can deploy the policy manually, or you can then apply the policy to the management groups and all the subscriptions, part of those management groups where you apply the policy will then inherit that policy setting as well. And so one thing I'm thinking about with policies is, can you control the policy to take action for you? Or can you control the policy to only give you a report? Kind of if someone broke the policy, you don't want to stop them, but you might want to get a, an alert or, or some kind of report based on that. Yeah, you can configure. Um, typically, you have a setting in a policy. You can configure that you just want to audit. If somebody's doing this, I just want to audit this, and then I can go to Azure Monitor to see, okay, what's happening here? Who's trying to do what? So you get this monitoring capability, but often if you have this suspicion that we want to deny anybody from deploying virtual machines, 
that are at this cost level anywhere, then you don't want to audit anymore. You just want to deny that. Mm-hmm. And instead of using just permissions, so instead of creating custom role-based access control uh, settings and then applying those to Azure AD groups or individual users, with Azure policy, you simply define the policy, then you apply the policy, and that's it. So in, in a way, Azure policy is a bit like what we had with Active Directory 20 years ago with group policy objects. You would define something, then you would apply, and it would apply to individual users or, or some other objects that you want to control. That makes sense. And I, I really like the simplicity of, of using that uh, to, to kind of, on a broad scale, if you're an enterprise, apply the organizational and compliance policies you might have uh, you know, across the board without going into each subscription manually or going even into each resource group or actual resource to configure that, you can do this on, on, a, you know, on the top of the hierarchy, if you will, and push that down. Um, and, and talking about that, when you push that down or when you make those changes, I know we briefed in a different episode about something called Azure Arc. So if you're kind of in a hybrid management and you're managing other servers somewhere and, and you're using Azure Arc, can you make use of that or how would you kind of keep your governance when you have this hybrid kind of setup? So in a hybrid scenario, and now that we have the public preview on Azure Arc, the idea would be that you would have your virtual machines, possibly in on-premises or in a different cloud. And with Azure policy, you could push down those policy settings for those individual VMs you have elsewhere. So those VMs are then projected in Azure, and then you apply the policy on those projections, and they will apply directly within those VMs. So it's a bit more limited in the sense, because now, if you're not hosting those VMs in Azure, obviously, none of the policies that have to do something with an Azure setting won't apply anymore. So you kind of have to come up with different sets of policies for those individual needs. And I would argue that if you're running VMs in a separate data center, perhaps your on-premises data center that you own or manage, you most probably are running Active Directory there or something similar that already has the GPOs that allow you to do everything you basically need. So Azure Arc is great, but perhaps I wouldn't start using Azure Arc just for pushing down Azure policy because you still need something else to complement all of those different needs you might have. But it's nice that the option is there. Yeah, got it. That's very good insights. And so you mentioned something else. So Azure policies is something I think is a pretty broad topic. So we'll probably do an episode only on that later on. Uh, But you also mentioned something called Azure blueprints. And I've only briefly touched on that and, and done a couple of demo ones or dev ones. But what is Azure Blueprint and how does that fit into the story of Azure governance? So with Azure Blueprint, uh, that's relatively new as well. So with Azure Blueprint, you can create predefined templates that you would then apply to management groups to your Azure subscriptions. So the idea would, would be that I want to create a new subscription but I want to remove certain capabilities, not just in terms of permissions, but I want to get rid of those features showing in Azure Portal, for example. And one of these would be that I want to create a subscription, 
but nobody can provision let's say virtual machines in there or azure sql databases so within the blueprint which is a json template or json file uh, as an arm template i've defined i want to restrict the visibility of this capability mm -hmm. and once we provision the subscription we staple the azure blueprint definition on top of this and then it would remove those capabilities for all users typically and, and you, this, you can do that with new subscriptions and you can also staple that onto an exis existing subscription yeah and this this is one of those capabilities that i saw when i did i think i did the um, the az500 the azure security certification exam and i think they were using blueprints in there because they spin up this ad hoc subscription for you and you actually have to do something in a lab and I tried to be maybe a bit too clever to fix something they were asking me. And, and then I realized they'd used perhaps an Azure Blueprint to, to deny certain capabilities from me so that I would, I would stay within the sandbox that they had provisioned for me. Right, for. so you didn't want to fix the problem. You want to fix the actual test environment. Hey, guys, this... Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. I'm just going to fine-tune this a bit for you guys. <laughs> yeah, so Azure Blueprint's definitely useful, perhaps in those scenarios where you frequently provision new Azure subscriptions. You might have a lot of developers, or you might have different needs, like let's do a new subscription weekly, spin something up, test, and then destroy that subscription then Blueprints makes more sense. Yeah, all right. Um, another thing you mentioned initially is something called the Azure Resource Graph. And so this is something I've been dabbling with a, a little bit myself lately. So how does that fit in? Now we've brushed on management group policies, Blueprints. So what about the Resource Graph for, for Azure? What is that? So I think in the Microsoft realm, uh, we've had enough graphs in our lifetime. We had the Office graph. Oh, there's have, more common, believe me. <laughs> yeah, there's Microsoft graph. Now we have the uh, Azure resource graph. And I think the idea here is that by naming it graph, it also tells us that, okay, there's more capabilities to us uh, that's, that, that we can see on the surface. So there's APIs we can query, of course. But the idea with the resource graph is that we get quick access to our resources to query and view. What do we actually have? So show me all the virtual machines that we have. Perhaps they're not visible in Azure portal, or I might not have permission to all of those. So give me a quick listing of things so that I can make an educated decision, of, for example, if I want to apply a policy. Yeah. And so, so from my point of view with Azure Graph, it's exactly this, what you mentioned, that you get the visibility across all the cloud resources you have. Um, and it's also based on a query language, so you can actually write pretty powerful queries, whereas if in the Azure portal you go to, uh, to view all resources, I believe this part is actually powered by the Azure Graph. Um, so whatever you can see there, you can also query yourself, but then you can add on pretty complex queries to that, to filter, to group, to do whatever you want, but also to visualize. So one thing I've done is to, because I have a lot of subscriptions, I have a lot of things spread out uh, you know, across the cloud landscape. And instead of going to each Azure portal and trying to figure out what's, what's lying there, what's in the next one, what's over here, the Azure graph has proven to be a pretty nice entry point 
and I can either use the CLI or PowerShell. So I can do it from my workstation and I can query that using you know, the command line, but uh, otherwise I can go into the Azure portal and actually uh, go in there and type the query with multiple lines. I get query help, there's sample queries, and I get this full query explorer saying, here's all the data available. Do you want to look at the security stuff? No. Do you want to look at compute? Yes, that's what I want because I know my stuff but I'm looking for right now, it's maybe functions or web apps or whatever it is. So you can also do this visually so you don't have to be the expert in the CLI or PowerShell. And then on top of that, also be an expert in the query language. But you can actually drill down into that from the Azure portal to kind of learn how the Azure graph works. And I'm very impressed uh, by what I've seen so far. And, and this, is really, uh, this is really cool. I'm, I'm now vaguely recalling that perhaps we mentioned this uh, 15 episodes ago or so when we listed all the relevant developer tools that, that people should know. I would actually look it up now, but as somebody said to me, I'm, I'm using a click at the clack keyboard, which is super noisy. So if I, type, <laughs> if I type anything and I've got recording on, you wouldn't hear anything else than my typing and that wouldn't be any fun. Yeah. On the other hand, that would take me back. So maybe that would be some fond memories. Um, but yeah, to, to finalize my thoughts on, on the graph there, uh, from in the portal, just so if you're listening in and you want to try that out, you go to either a management group or a subscription. So if you have a root management group, you can go to the very top one and then click policies and then resource graph, and then you can query whatever you have below that uh, and create visuals, create graphs, whatever you want. Uh, so that's pretty cool. And I think you can also access that through resources.azure.com directly. Yeah. And, and that's also, that's a great tip. And I, I think we actually brought that up in the same post you just referred to 15 episodes or so ago. Um, if you go there, that's pretty much a, a REST or JSON-based approach uh, to viewing all the data you have in your subscription. So if yeah. you're trying to figure something out, if you want to know an internal property of, of a VM or a function app or whatever it is, and you have no idea where to see that in the portal, resources.azure.com, find it there. You'll see all the properties, the full JSON of all the objects. So that's pretty cool. Sounds, sounds cool. So I'm already anxiously waiting for perhaps five years from now, then we can refer, yeah, maybe about... 275 episodes ago, we mentioned this and this and this. Go look it up. <laughs> exactly. All righty. And, and then also, uh, besides Azure policy management groups, blueprints, resource graph, and cost management and billing, so those are the top, top five things in Azure governance, we often also see people mentioning Azure Lighthouse, which is also relatively new. It was announced last year. It's available now. And even though officially doesn't seem to be part of Azure governance in the sense um, MSPs, so those Microsoft partners that provide some sort of managed services for their customers, perhaps they might be managing their customers' Azure subscriptions. Uh, MSPs would benefit from Azure Lighthouse that they can now leverage uh, the Azure governance uh, engine, if you will, to get access to their customer subscriptions without having a separate account. So they can use their own account to federate access to a different subscription. And by using Azure Lighthouse, the customer can ap uh, approve or decline those uh, access requests 
from the MSP asking that could we perhaps manage all of your app services, please? And they can say, uh, no, but you can manage this app service or this resource group, but we don't want you to see everything we have in here because we have different things you don't need to worry about for now. Yeah. So Azure Lighthouse, I did a long write-up on that late last year, so I will, I will put the link in the show notes. And one of the things that, that was surprising to me that it works really well, but you need to fiddle a lot with the ARM templates because it, it simply picks up the template and applies that. That's all there is to it. So if something fails, it's a problem in the template. Okay, fair enough. And I've wrestled a lot with ARM templates and that can be a challenge as well. So if you haven't, ramp up your game on ARM templates as well because they are used across the board for a lot of things, especially now when we talk governance policies and blueprints and lighthouse and all these things, you know, ARM plays a pretty central role to all of them. So now that you mentioned ARM templates and the challenges with those, do you use Visual Studio Code and do you have this super secret, amazing extension or plugin we we should all be using? Or are you one of those people who use Notepad and is happily doing the templates with just Notepad? So that's actually a good question. What I use is sometimes when I need to make quick changes and I know exactly what I'm looking for and my template is already a resource in my Azure subscription, I can actually just go in and edit the template in the browser because I know exactly what I'm doing, of course, until I hit the deploy button and realize I had no idea what I was doing, then I need to go back. And then I take that, I drop it in Visual Studio Code or if it's part of a bigger enterprise kind of uh, cloud scale project, then I might use Visual Studio and, and do it from there. But most of the time I use Visual Studio Code and there's a couple of different plugins for uh, ARM visualizations. You can actually visualize the templates. The problem I have with most of those, if not all of them, I don't have an ARM template with a web app and a function app and a storage account. I have ARM templates with five key vaults and 30 storage accounts and, you know, huge things. And of course, this can be broken down, but Ideally, I would love one visual where I would see everything. Uh, so the visualization extensions are great, but perhaps if you have a lot of resources, it can be challenging to visualize that automatically. So that's why I do it myself. Um, on the other end of, of the extensions, you have IntelliSense, which helps you a lot. So when you build your template, you will get IntelliSense in Visual Studio Code telling you, well, here's the available versions for what you're trying to do for that endpoint. Here's what you should be using. Here's the variables or the parameters that are available for you to use because you define them up here in the template. So IntelliSense can can help you a lot and Visual Studio Code is awesome to to get started. And then of course you have the built-in terminal or if you use the standalone CLI, doesn't really matter. You can just say, deploy this template now and you can see it in action and see if it works. If it doesn't, you can automatically delete the resource group fix whatever you need to try and just do it again. So you can iterate really quick on that without having to, like unfortunately I've seen some people, they make changes to the code base, they commit it. So it goes into DevOps and they have a build and a release pipe is started. Then you have a deploy to the dev or test environment only to realize the template didn't work. Then you get an email saying the build failed and then you have to go back and change one line and then iterate that entire process. And, you know, that was a lot of words to explain something that should be really, really simple to do. Uh, so with Visual Studio Code, I guess what I'm trying to say is 
Visual Studio Code helps you write ARM templates. So take a look at that. And we'll put some extension links also in the show notes. Yeah, definitely. And, and we need to do an episode on Visual Studio Code as, as well as Visual Studio 2019 is the latest version. Uh, on IntelliSense, before we close up this episode, on IntelliSense, it, it helps me so much. It might be a week or two. I don't really have time to open Visual Studio to actually create anything. And then when I, when I get these two hours when, when the kids are napping or outdoors playing or eating dinner or watching Netflix, and I know, okay, I, I've got 45 minutes to get something done, and then I start, start writing code, IntelliSense really saves me in there because I, I type in the, uh, um, the method name, and, and then I'm like, what, what did I need to add in here? And IntelliSense kind of saves me an awful lot of time so that I don't have to go to Stack Overflow to copy-paste something from there. Yeah, I mean, I'm not going to lie. I've been building professional solutions for, I don't know, better part of 20 years almost and been coding a lot. IntelliSense has helped me every single day. And there is, you know, when people say, I just write in Notepad, I don't need IntelliSense, whatever. You know, if that works for you, that's awesome. For me, I am super productive getting that IntelliSense help because I can, I know what I'm going to write kind of, I might not remember if it's a plural in the end or if it contains async or not. If the API has been changed, IntelliSense knows that. So just typing a few letters that I know I'm looking for, IntelliSense does the rest. And that's, yeah, that's, that's how I become a, a productive developer anyways. IntelliSense about, is my friend. About 15 years ago, I was, I was sitting with a group of friends and, and that was the time when .NET Framework had already been out for about three, four years maybe. And one friend said that he memorized all the namespaces in .NET Framework so that he doesn't need to look at the manual anymore. And, and That's I awesome. Thought, what a, that's, I mean, <laughs> I must say kudos to that person. Yeah. And I mean, I, I hope the namespaces doesn't change too much over the years. <laughs> yeah, it could be. And, and, and I asked him how, how many namespaces was it? And he said it's 10,000. And, okay. and, he, and he, was, he was quite content with this. I thought it was awesome, of course, because I could only memorize like five system.txt and, oh no, sorry, system.io and system.net and system.web. That, that was about it. Uh, and he could memorize 10,000 of those and he could write code just like that without looking, looking even at the screen anymore because he knew it by heart. <laughs> Perhaps 15 years ago, it was like that. I'm quite certain on this day and age, it's a little bit different because you need to pull data from so many places that you cannot memorize all of those anymore. Yeah. All right. All righty. So, so word of the day. Uh, so we learn a bit of Swedish, a bit of Finnish. Uh, so let's start with Swedish. So the Swedish word that I found is, and this is officially a Swedish word since 2019. It is borrowed from Japanese. And it means something like the meaning of my existing or existence or like your reason to jump out of bed in the morning. And that's ikigai. And this has now been, become a Swedish word in the, in the dictionary. So we're kind of embracing or adopting words from other places. And I, I really like this word because it's, if you've found your ikigai, it means you have found your reason to jump out of bed in the morning. And um, the definition of that in, in Japanese is when you find a good average between your passion, what you're good at, uh, and what the world needs, and what you can get paid doing, when you find an average of all of those that you're content with, then you've found your ikigai. 
Okay, sounds sounds simple enough. I think I've seen the word maybe maybe a year ago on on Twitter from somebody. I didn't really understand what it meant. So ikigai. Easy yeah, enough. because it's a Japanese word, right? So you don't even yeah. have to pretend to know Swedish anymore. A- exactly. So you officially stole, I mean, you officially borrowed this word, and now it's officially a Swedish word. And I also introduced now the Japanese word of the day into this show. So that's going to oh, yeah. be a challenge for both of us. <laughs> oh, yeah, that will definitely be a challenge. Uh, and on the Finnish one, um, I spent quite a bit of time finding this, and this was a new word for me. And it, it's, it just goes to tell how old I am because I don't understand the teenagers anymore. So the Finnish word is katu. Katu. Katu, exactly. And it's a shortening. So katu itself doesn't mean anything. Uh, but it's a shortening for kämppätyhjänä, which again means the flat or, or your home is empty, implying that the parents are away implying there's opportunity to enjoy life and perhaps party a little. Wow. Okay. So, kettu or kämpä tyhjene. Yes, exactly. There you go. So Yeah, my, my, my flat is empty and it, it shortens to kätu. So I will, I will use this the next time I can, which I think is about 12 years from now when the kids move away. Then I can finally say, kätu, let's party. Finally, yeah. <laughs> All right, cool. Then cool. I, th- I think thank you for this episode. That was actually quite insightful. Um, and now I'm very keen on reading that book of yours on Azure Governance. Yeah, I'll, I'll link the book um, in the show notes as well. So it's, it's freely available now as a digital copy. I think they will have the link on Amazon Kindle at some point, but you can get the PDF, the mobile, the EPUB versions today for free. So I link that in the show notes. Thank you for this. This was informative. And until next time. See you then. Thank you for tuning in to the Control-Alt-Azure podcast. Find out more and read the show notes on controlaltazure.com. Stay tuned.